The 2020 Network is brought to you by Interac. Speed is key for Canadian shoppers. Is your business keeping up? It can with Interact Flash. It's the platform that millions of Canadians use to check out quickly and securely. Learn more at interact.ca. Hello, everybody. It's Friday, November 30th. It is December tomorrow, believe it or not. Here with me in studio is Tim Powers of Summa Strategies and David Reevely of the Canadian Press. Last time you were here, it was of... The Ottawa Citizen. That's right. I made how, a move. How is it going? Uh, well, you'd have to ask my coworkers, but <laughs> I, I think it's going pretty well. There seems to be a lot of good treats going around in the Canadian press. Uh, and well, you? you know, an army marches on its stomach and a, <laughs> a news bureau does as well. It's a, an incredibly hardworking group, but the, it's the sugar and the caffeine that actually makes it possible. Um, and the Green Day tweet also. Uh, yes. Yeah. There, I've, I've discovered a bit of a generation uh, <laughs> cultural awareness gap among my coworkers. One person asked whether Green Day was an emo band and the other asked what emo was. (laughs) And I didn't know who to yell at first. Um, We've gotten it sorted out though. Yeah, yeah, we got it sorted out. We understand. I was shocked by that. Um, uh, and, And Tim Powers, you have some rugby news. Well, Sarah, I mean, it's not like the whole country well, doesn't know already yeah. that Rugby Canada, our men's 15s team, captured the last spot in the 2019 woo, World woo, Cup woo. in Japan next year, our ninth consecutive time there. So as the supposed chair of Rugby Canada, I'm very happy that's that nobody's going to lynch me because we actually <laughs> made it. <laughs> well, that's it, right? And we have these, I'm going to be sporting my rugby pin um, all day. Not paid for by taxpayers' dollars, <laughs> by sponsor money. <laughs> Um, okay, let's let's get into it. On Monday, General Motors announced it would be closing five North American auto plants, uh, including one in Oshawa, Ontario, by the end of 2019 as a way to move um, more to crossovers, SUVs, trucks, and electric and self-driving vehicles. By doing so, this will cut, although I've heard this, the numbers are changing to me, so it's going to cut more than 14,000 jobs? In all, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Oshawa and the closure of the plant there is what we have talked most about in Canada for very obvious reasons, but they are closing assembly plants and parts plants in the United States right. and uh, a couple in South Korea, and they are laying off something like 8,000 salaried workers, so okay. m- managers and executives and uh, people who work in offices rather than on plant floors. Okay. So so Chief Executive of GM and Mary- Barra said that the company was responding to responding to lower demand for traditional passenger cars. Um, can I ask? And we just sort of touched on this prior to recording, but can I ask like a, a basic question of: Do North American plants um, just not have the manufacturing capabilities to to create these sort of like zero emission cars, Tim? I don't know the answer to that question. I haven't heard that issue raised because there has been discussion before about that plant in Oshawa being retooled, I believe is the actual term they use to bring in uh, bring in new vehicles. The argument that President Trump seems to be making, and I have no way to know whether it's fallacious or not, like most of his arguments, is that it's cheaper to do whatever GM wants to do in Mexico. I don't know if that's accurate right. or not. I, I think the thing for me with all of this, regardless of whether GM can re 
restructure, redevelop its line there. It says a lot about loyalty, doesn't it? Yeah. When 10 years ago, Canada and the United States took these companies from the brink of bankruptcy. Right. And I think that's also why people are so mad. It's not just the 2,500 $2, uh, people that are being laid off, and that's not insignificant. It's like uh, it's a real statement of what global capitalism can be about when it's uh, in its fullest tune. Yeah, but I mean, so so yeah, these jobs were in place because of, of government subsidies, but um, and and but the, when the subsidy runs out, the jobs are going to go with it instead of just letting the market sort of play its natural course. Well, I don't think the to be fair, I don't think these jobs were in place because of government subsidies, as I. The, the only fact that I seem to believe in all of this, and, and, and David, I'm sure, has, has looked deeper at it than I have, is that this plant was making Impalas. I know I don't think anybody around this table drives an Impala, and I don't want to make a judgment around people who drive Impalas. But guess what? Impalas aren't selling. Um, and I don't think the, the deal originally wasn't about keeping the 2,500 people there in Oshawa. It was about making sure the industry survived. So, uh, you know, I, whether it can be retooled, as I said, I don't right. know. Right, right. Yeah, my understanding is that there are there are a couple of strands yeah. here, um, and neither of them has worked out to GM Canada's advantage. Uh, mm -hmm. There is, you know, the, the market for sedans, for cars, is shrinking. Mm -hmm. People who are buying um, certainly for gas-powered ones. People who are buying gas-powered vehicles are tending to buy larger ones. They're buying SUVs and small trucks, uh, which are not what GM makes here. That's some of the production that they have been moving southward. Uh, labor could be a labor cost, as, as President Trump and others say. It's probably a factor in that. And then there is the move towards electric and autonomous vehicles, um, which in, are often smaller. Of the to look at the kinds of cars that we're accustomed to making here, but the guts of them are very, very different. They're more like assembling computers than assembling traditional gas-powered cars, and hmm. production of those has going is going elsewhere, as I understand it. Not because we couldn't make them here, but because the market isn't here so much. China is a huge yeah, market, sure. especially for electric vehicles, and so it makes financial sense for companies to build them in China or closer to China. And so there is this hmm. larger economic need for, if, if we're going to continue making cars in Canada, for us to buy those kinds of cars yeah. in Canada. It's kind and of, we haven't been doing it. It's kind of funny that, like, it's it's terrible news, obviously, but there's there's something, there's kind of an irony to it in that it's good thing that can, people aren't buying as many gas-powered cars, right? Like, it's it's just kind of the... The funny irony to it, but sir, there's a, there's something else that I don't think we've really looked at in depth on this story. It's also a fascinating statement about regionalism and the focus on Central Canada for a whole bunch of reasons. And I say this as somebody from the East Coast. So yes, twenty five hundred, three thousand jobs are gone. Terrible, uh, no doubt about that. Uh, we shut down the cod fishery in Newfoundland twenty five plus years ago. That was thirty five thousand jobs and four hundred communities. Yeah, Let me right. say that again: no, yeah. thirty five thousand four. Uh, people did adjust. Invariably, people here will adjust 
too. But it was funny to watch just about every Canadian political leader, whether you liked what they were saying or not, falling all over themselves to get into this debate, expressing yes. uh, remor- remorse to those who were losing their jobs, saying they were going to help. Um, the, the politics of it, because it was in Ontario, yes, was uh, was uh, not refreshing and sadly predictable. Well, exactly. And, and like, you know, oil is to Alberta, auto is to Ontario. But what, I'm curious, was there that kind of response from political leaders when those those... Yeah, it was a very different time. The fishery closed in July when people think it's always at its height. Yes, arguably there was. There was a significant retraining program in the billions of dollars uh, that was somewhat helpful. So Canada has experience in dealing with industrial closure. I guess the sad part of it was instead of a whole new diversified industrial opportunities picking up, which is the Canadian government's argument today as it was then, people went into other commodities production industry so they still became or still were somewhat vulnerable to the shifts in global commodity prices environmental movement forward and the like but they did survive hmm. mm-hmm. um, so what is the the uh, reasonable response then from from both the Ontario government and the federal government I mean um, Jerry Diaz uniform president seemed to be very adamant that the plant isn't going to close, you know, it's it's not going to, that's not going to be the outcome. Um, Trudeau took a bit of a different uh, approach to that. Um, he stayed a little bit more mum on, on this issue. Do you think that was smart? And do you think that, what is the, the, the next step for governments on this? Mm. I, I, governments have, both the Ontario Progressive Conservative government and the federal Liberal government, which really don't get along on much no. these days. Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau both have been talking as if it's done. Yeah, there's all they can they can help the workers, but it, the GM uh, executives at different levels to each of them came and told them on a, the Sunday night before the Monday morning closure that it was it wasn't up for negotiation. That this wasn't a, a sort of bargaining strategy. They weren't asking for money to keep it open. It was closing. End of story. And so all they can do is seek to help the workers. Right. And I, I'm there figuring out what that is going to look like uh, is, I mean, that's a bit of a project. They didn't know. They were taken, I think, aback by by the whole thing. So they didn't have a plan in place. Uh, Ford asked for an extension of EI right. benefits five by weeks five weeks from 45 to 50 weeks for the affected workers, which is, I mean, it's not nothing, but it's also not a plan no. uh, for helping. I, I mean, these are jobs in the GTA. They're good jobs in the GTA. They're manufacturing jobs in the GTA. They're, but that's a very large economic area, and 2,500 people in many cases can probably be absorbed in other industries, which is not, though, a thing for politicians to say. Yeah. Like, well, you'll find yeah. other work. Well, so, yeah. That, right. Of course <laughs> well, they're not the going to say that. Like, but like, I don't know what they, they can do. They certainly can't. They don't, they're not talking like they can do anything about this closure. It's no. only the aftermath that but, they can help. But with. people do want in immediate in the immediate hours of something like this happening. They want their politicians to be like outraged. Obviously because they're outraged. So if they don't see that in their political leadership, um I think that's not a good thing. I mean, I think that's why people like Trump's response, right? That was like, you know, it was like retaliation is coming. We're not going to accept this. I was very firm with her. Um, You know, we're not going to stand for this, right? 
Except Jerry Diaz is talking nonsense, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, we're not going to let the plant close. Well, how is that possible, Jerry? Are you going to buy the plant? Are you going to get into yes. the production of vehicles yourselves? And if you continue your wildcat strikes, the company has cause to fire you. So what are you counseling your employees? What sort of <laughs> hope are you giving to these workers? False hope is as bad as no hope in this case. I, I think, again, it's going to come down to how creative they can be, they being the governments, in dealing with the transition of these workers. One proposal that I heard floating about, which I think is sort of sensible, though I've not seen the economic modeling on it yet, is for the workers that are in their late 50s, early 60s, who retraining really probably isn't an option, do you bridge finance their pensions? Hmm. That could be Mm -hmm. a solution. It's probably more cost-effective than training them to get jobs that they won't get because they'll invariably end up back on EI. So this is going to be, you you talk about it on this podcast often, AI, artificial intelligence, industrial disruption. This has also got to be a wake-up call for, all right, what is real transition and what does it look like and what's possible? And let's be honest with the workers about that because they at least deserve honesty. So former interim um, conservative leader Rona Ambrose noted on Wednesday in Ottawa, um, she was attending a Growth Canada conference, um, but that GM's move is sort of hovering over the upcoming, well, actually, it's already been signed, the USMCA deal. Um, it was signed this morning. So, you know, um, she said this could it could change the course of the deal. Now, I guess it's already been signed, but there are these remaining um, aluminum and steel tariffs. There's still a lot going on. The deal has been signed, but unlike signing a you know a private contract when that's pretty much the end of the process, that still has to be ratified by legislatures in all three countries. Um, you know, if in in Canada we have a majority Liberal government, the Liberals have signed the thing. The Liberals will almost certainly ratify it. In the states, though, there are uh, Democrats who are about to take over control of the House of Representatives. They have a bunch of things that you know, procedurally they have to do. The thinking is they'll take up ratification of this thing in the spring. Oh, wow. Um, okay. So it, it could take Good quite time. some time. And there is n- no guarantee that they will vote to ratify um, the agreement there. And the politics of Mexico as well. And I mean, part of the reason why they did it today is literally tomorrow a new president is taking office. Oh, that's right. Um, so who is not personally as friendly to this thing. He can't easily go back on the signing that happened today, but there's a legislative process that has to happen there too. Right. So there is much Much yet to to be done before this becomes real. Do we know who signed the deal? I I heard that that was going to be a a prominent thing, whether it was going to be the leaders of the countries or or, or just ministers or... I believe it was the three leaders. It was the three leaders today. Yeah. It, it, there was a lot of uncertainty about that. I think as recently as yesterday, um, there was a report in the Wall Street Journal that it was going to be Christia Freeland, right. who's our foreign minister, and her equivalent trade people in the other two countries. But in the end, it was the three. It was the three, the three leaders. Really fascinating, though, yeah. that it was signed in Buenos Aires, out of the, out of out, not in any of the three sovereign nations that signed it, out of the spotlights, yeah. out of prime yeah. time. Uh, news coverage, which is a reflection, I think, of the tepid nature in which two of the three parties yes. are embracing the deal. To David's point about process, I mean, you go back um, uh, to 1988, some of us were very young in 1988, very, very <laughs> I'm not talking about you, Sarah, I'm talking about myself. Uh, and uh, that was, of course, the election around the free trade agreement, which then led to NAFTA. The NAFTA agreement wasn't actually signed until Jean Chrétien and Bill Clinton had taken power and they were not party to the... So it, it takes
takes a very long time. The other thing, having come back just from from Europe and watching the Brexit <coughs> drama, yeah, there are challenges along the way, but any new leader coming in is not likely going to want to embrace reversing the form of political will that got people to the place where they're signing the agreement. Because to undo that, you create a whole other mess. So that's what new leaders coming in calculate as they look at agreements that they have inherited. So now, as as much as I want to go into uh, steamy Ottawa senators' drama, I don't want to keep... Tim isolated over here because I live not far from the bread and fat, <laughs> so I'm happy to jump in. No, um, so we're going to dive into some uh, climate news of the week. On Tuesday, the UN released its um, annual report card on climate change. There's you know more bad news um, and not all that shocking. We're, we're we've got a big fat F, and we're not <laughs> we're nowhere near hitting our, our Paris climate agreement goals for 2020. I mean, that is like a year away. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Just over. Just over. It's an interim target. We're, and we, we're going to have to do more beyond that, but we're not even... We're not even close. close. Um, and I think we've... I think I heard yesterday we've got about 12 solid years before we start seeing, like, very destructive effects on, on, on climate. Um, I mean, the wildfires in California were just, you know, the latest example. Um, and I actually kind of feel like that was a, a from a political perspective that will help people, politicians in favor of climate uh, action, just because of the very nature of how public it was and how destructive it was and how it affected people in the public eye. Um, Doctors added their voice to the call this week as well. A series of reports supported by top medical agencies highlighted the need for climate action. Um, they said sort of the the number one you know, thing that governments can tackle in the next century is is climate change for human health. Um, and you think of, like, the tick-borne diseases that spurred up this summer and, and whatnot. So is the, the medical prowess going to going to add any impact on, <laughs> on this discussion? I, my, that shaking of my head was involuntary. Uh, maybe I need medical advice. No, uh, I, I don't think it is. Uh, for those who view the whole carbon debate as being one about taxation and wanting to take a populist bent in turning around the narrative on it. So um, there have been many reports about the need to act. Uh, we still haven't seen uh, politicians of all stripe embrace this with the degree that they should be doing it. Another report is not going to push no. people over the edge. Although I was reading uh, little bits of it, and I know we're, we all haven't thoroughly reviewed it yet. Exciting re- weekend reading, I'm sure it will be, <laughs> but the Ontario Climate Plan. One thing that stood out for me, and David would know this better now, I didn't realize that Ontario, right. according to the, pro- the Rod Phillips, the environment minister, has uh, a, had a 22% emission in CO2 reductions because of the what the Liberals did in closing the coal-fired plants. So in jurisdictions like this one, where you would actually think things aren't happening, they are happening because mm-hmm. decisions were made previously. Now Ontario, again, as I read, I don't know if it's factually accurate, only needs another 8% over the next 12 oh. years to get to the 2030 goal, which right. doesn't seem that uh, uh, as an unreachable thing. So what I find interesting, and I'll shut up after this, about the 
Ontario plan is, and perhaps this is the biggest thing that comes out of the plan, there isn't a denial that climate change is an issue. So that debate seems to have moved past. Yes, there's fights about how you reduce uh, the the climate footprint, the CO2 footprint, but now they're saying, yeah, this is real. Like, so even just releasing a report is confirmation of yeah, it's real. Yeah, it's it's how it's how they're going to tackle it. I, I think that the issue with the coal plants really does in Ontario really does speak to the the political challenge that governments have. Yeah. The, the Liberals pretty much unilaterally closed some very large coal fire generating plants, and that reduced like visible pollution as well. Smog days in Toronto, which is downwind of a bunch of them, plunged from fifty a year to just a couple, uh, and also carbon dioxide emissions collapsed in a good way, which is great. And also the price of electricity in Ontario went up and the progressive conservatives hammered at the liberals daily on that forever. And that's probably a major reason why they're in power now. So it's something to see Rod Phillips say, listen, we've already done the stuff that needed doing, so we don't have to do all that much more. That is true. But when he was in, well, I mean, he wasn't an opposition MPP, but when his party was in opposition, the costs associated with that move were a thing that they dined out on. So, I mean, this is not going to be free. No. There's yeah. There are a few things that we can do that actually leave us ahead uh, on many fronts. Uh, conservation, you know, turning off the lights, switching to LEDs. You, sit, you save cash that way in addition to using less power. That's the lowest hanging fruit. There's still stuff to be done there. But... You know, we talked about electric cars. An electric car off the top is more expensive than a gas-powered car. If we're going to mandate, you could just imagine a government policy mandating electric cars instead of gas-powered cars. What would the opposition, no matter who, what, um, regardless what party it is, imagine what the opposition would say? You're going to make Canadians pay an extra fifteen thousand dollars, you know, for your harebrained scheme that is not going to work, et cetera, et cetera. And like, it's, so when you, this is a really hard problem for kind of an adversarial political system to deal with. When you have an opposition whose job it is, whose job it is to point out all the things that are wrong and all the costs and not contend with the necessary trade-offs. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's It's just, it's doomed for failure. Um, It's a danger. If Ontario can achieve its targets through other means other than carbon pricing. Isn't that, like, shouldn't that be substantial? I guess the, the it, it's like, where's the proof of that, though? And, and that's the entirety of the debate, right? People are, you know, some will say in Europe, if you look at carbon taxation regimes, that they do actually work in re- reducing uh, CO2 emissions. Um, Phillips has gone with an incentive fund, some might call it a subsidy, mm-hmm. uh, saying to business, look, um, we, we will help you innovate. Here's the money to do it. I haven't seen the details on how it will work. I think it's a half a billion dollar yeah. fund that's there. Politically, they have to take that approach, again, whether it works or not. They may be tapping into what you're seeing anyways. Smart leading businesses who uh, are driven by how shareholders view them are already beginning reforms on how they extract or uh, manage emissions from uh, from their various plants. So um, it, it may not be as much of a stretch as yeah. people think. Yeah, but Catherine McKenna yesterday, uh, federal environment minister, sort of came out and said, you know, Conservative, uh, the Ontario Conservatives are once again trying to get out of this whole thing. I mean, to me, that was a bit of a poo-poo of, of an idea. But um, 
but yeah, I, I, I wonder, I just wondered if there are some provinces that are going to go with their own plan, then is there going to be a federal carbon price for them? What will be fascinating to see is, if I remember this correctly, Ottawa did did say, if you didn't have a plan, yeah. we are going to step in. So Ontario, we're late with the plan on the date as it was deemed to be appropriate by the federal government. Now they have a plan. I haven't yet heard if it will meet with acceptance of, of the federal government right. or not. And, you know, for either either of the governments having a fight around this may not be a bad thing. Maybe that's what they want because they can get into uh, fighting over who has the best approach. And that will be uh, welcomed, I suspect, by certain packets of voters that support them both. Um, okay. We're going to go to something much more fun. The last time I made you guys talk about Taylor Swift, so this time it went really well. That was a really uh, interesting discussion. That was discussion. a really interesting conversation. So I hope Don't this one is too. Um, this time we're talking about marriage, uh, political engagements. Um, the the same day GM made its grim announcement, Green Party leader Elizabeth May made an exciting one. She is getting engaged to seventy one year old John Kidder. Um, a retired BC-based technology entrepreneur um, with, I hear, Green Party roots. Um, so that's romantic. They've supposedly known each other for several years, but took it to the next level on a romantic scale um, at a Green Party convention in Vancouver in September. Only a month later, she was in. She was proposed to. That is a lesson to women across this country. If you if you want your man to put a ring on it. Go to Elizabeth May and follow her rule book. That is that is impressive. Um, they're getting they're getting wed on Earth Day. <laughs> Did you know that? I didn't. It seems extremely appropriate. It seems extremely appropriate. Isn't that great? How were you, be honest? When you saw the news, were you, did your heart flutter a little bit? I listen. Two people meet, they fall in love, they want to get married. I, I mean, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And and I mean, uh, there are people who who lose their their spouses, people who get divorced and just decide that marriage is not for them again or it's never going to happen again. They're, you know, at a later stage in life, both of them. They've found each I other. Know. They're happy it's together. Great. I think it's fantastic. I, I, who knew the Green Party convention was an aphrodisiac? I, was, I, I mean, maybe all the singles serving. of the world should go to the Green Party convention. Well, I, I, that's what I told my mom. She's My mom is 65 and she's single and she went... Oh crap! What do I need to be doing? What do I need to be Sign doing? Sign up as a member of the Green Party, and yes. love is is yours. Is there? But you know what I, I think is also humanizing about this, and we all know this from being around politicians. Politics can be pretty lonely, and when you're a leader and you're a single leader, as uh, as Elizabeth was, it can be very isolating. Uh, you carry the weight of the world around or your party and the issues that matter to you, and being able to, regardless of age, to have somebody to share the rest of your life with. With somebody to share your your burdens, your challenges, your hopes, your dreams is is a great thing to see. I mean, uh, political ideologies aside, uh, Elizabeth is a, she's a unique person. Yeah. She's a warm character. Um, she leads with her right. heart. So why wouldn't you be happy yeah. for? Her? And she's she was kind of like she had made a note like I, you know I'm a really de- um, independent person. I had no time for love, and then this just happened, and and uh, there was butterflies, and came to her. I was I was girl crushing and. Love came to her. I, I think the point Tim makes is a, is a good one, though. I mean, she also she represents a West Coast riding. Yeah. She's has obligations all across the country. As the, I mean, she is the is the Green Party, certainly the face of the Green Party to a, a significant degree. 
there was a, uh, a female politician, groundbreaking female politician in Ottawa, Jean Piggott, mm. uh, conservative, um, who she was head of the National Capital Commission. She was an MP uh, for a bit, and she was a real mentor to a lot of other female politicians yeah. uh, who are kind of now in the later stages of their career. So she was really sort of the first generation. And a, a, a bit of wisdom that I've heard from women she mentored, uh, a couple of different ones, she warned them to value their marriages and their families mm. because... I, I, which is really hard. It's hard for men in politics. It's probably harder even for women in politics, and the more so then, because someday the lights will go out, huh. and you it'll be you, and you want someone to talk to, and you want to have someone there, also someone like to, in order to spend your your later years with, but also someone who remembers what it was like. Yes. So that don't put it off until after. You yeah. want to be with someone who was there at the time. Poetic, David, um, and also, I mean, she's at the stage in her in her life where she can, um, you know, there's adventures to be had. Uh, I think that's what what um, John Kidder had said. You know, like I'm excited for our time together. Their kids are grown; they can travel. She got a new hip. Don't she forget a year a or two ago. That's right. Wow. Okay. And the only thing that kind of pissed me off is that she's she, for her honeymoon. She's she's taking a train, a via rail from Vancouver to Ottawa. I'm like, come on. But I mean, it's very uh, on par for. I've heard it's gorgeous. I've <laughs> yeah. al- actually, I've always wanted to. I know, I kind of, I kind of did too. Especially through the Rockies. I mean, I don't know, but the part you know, east of Calgary. That's right. Between Calgary and Lake Superior. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I guess you can go through that part. But I hope it's an economy class oh, service I know. to live the brand. You can't, you can't be in one of those carts that has That's the open top right. where you see it all. God forbid. <laughs> okay, thank you, gentlemen. Can I have um, both of your Twitter handles, please? I'm at David Reevely. Simple as that. I'm at Powers Tim. Perfect. We'll see you here next time. The 2020 Network is brought to you by Interac. Interact maintains one of the world's largest debit networks by supporting 28 million active debit cards in Canada. Thanks to their secure technology and zero liability policy, Canadians can make everyday purchases with peace of mind. Learn more at interact.ca slash fraud prevention. 